I hope you didn't just let the last year pass by and this new year begin. Uh, every year is an opportunity for us to really reset, uh, to turn the page, to seek God for new things in our lives. You know, uh, during watch night service, I shared with you, right, my last year's re- resolution was to be able to exercise 150 minutes a week. And surprise, surprise, you know, after one year, I actually managed to keep to it. So this year, my resolution is to wake up before the rest of my family uh, to read the Bible, uh, to spend time with God. So the first day when I got up, when my daughter woke up, she looked at me, she, hmm? and she was very surprised. Because a few years ago, she told me, Dad, why don't you sleep you know, more? Let, I want to wake up alone to eat breakfast so I can be myself and have peace. Okay, so from then on, I think she was P4 or P5, I can't remember, I just let her be, right? But then this time around, she saw me, she was very surprised. Then the next day when I got up, I saw her, eh? I was very surprised. I said, why, why are you awake so early? She says, well, because I told you I want to have peace, eat breakfast before the rest of people wake up. And then I told her, you know my new resolution is to wake up before the rest of the family. And so if this goes on, does it mean we have to wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning? Thankfully, it's not, okay? We talked and we said, okay, Namai, you wake up, you do your own thing in the kitchen, I will do my own thing outside, right? So every year, we, it's an opportunity to start afresh. Uh, for our church, we have this new theme of contending for the faith. You know, you're content for the faith. What is this faith about? Why do we do it? So that's what we hope uh, to focus on this year. Um, especially today, we will look through uh, the book of Jude because that's where the phrase contending from the faith comes from. So let's uh, commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will move freely in our midst. Once again, may your hearts be captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ and our lives uh, submitted and consecrated for you. Thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church is a mile wide and an inch deep. This was a statement I heard about 18 years ago in a pastor's conference. And the person who said this is a well-known pastor called Bill Hybels. Now, it's a bit ironical coming from him because he is the one who started the seeker-sensitive movement. Essentially, in the 70s, he was frustrated why young people are not coming to church. So he did a survey of the whole neighborhood. Why don't you come to church? You don't like the music? We change the music. You don't like the teachings? Well, let's throw out all the deep stuff, the dogmas and doctrines and theology. Let's dumb it down. You don't like the worship time? You know, he shifted Sunday worship to Wednesday for the regular worshippers. And for Sunday, because he said new friends are more willing to come on Sundays, he changed the whole worship. And of course, as a result of that, his church began to grow in leaps and bounds, and he started this global movement, the seeker-sensitive movement. So, 30 years in, he did a survey of the spirituality of his church members, and he realized that they were very shallow. That is why he made a statement. Well, the church is mouth wide, a lot of people, but they're only inch deep. And so they announced they're going to shift their focus into discipleship. Now, he said this about 18 years ago. Today, when we look at the evangelical churches, we are part of the evangelical movement in the US. You know, they're splintering over to walk or not to walk, to mask or not to mask. Issues that don't seem to be central to the gospel. Why is that? More pertinently, will we become like that? I feel that this phenomenon is having a Christianity without a foundation in the Word of God or rootless Christianity. What I mean by rootless is not that we don't read the Word, 
but we don't understand a Christian worldview, how it has developed through the, the centuries, what our dogmas and doctrines are and why it is so. You see, if you ask you to think about church history, what comes to mind? Think about apostles, Billy Graham, and us. Now, if you are more informed, maybe you think about the Reformation. But it's as if the 2,000 years didn't happen, you know. Just a blink of an eye and we're here today. When that happens, when we see the issues of our world today, we will lack perspective. We will respond out of our own needs, our own thoughts, that is greatly shaped by the culture and the world rather than the Word of God. So rootless Christianity is not that we don't treat God's Word seriously, but we don't allow it or it has not shaped our values and when we respond to issues, it's very short-term. We are more aligned to the world than to the Word. When this happens, you know, the church becomes a place of grievances rather than grace. We respond out of fear rather than freedom and forgiveness. When people think of the church, they only think of the political stance we take, right? Whether to build the casino or not in the past, whether to uh, support same-sex marriage or not. They do not think of our gospel-centered lives. 2022 December, when I went back to the U.S., you know, my friends, they say it's quite wearisome life. Life is quite wearisome because any issue is polarizing, not just in the society, but even in the church. And so I think it's important for us to understand dogmas, doctrines, theology, how it has come about to be so. So that when we look at issues, you know, we have a perspective of how to deal with this, how the Bible responds, how should we respond in a gospel-centered way. So today from the book of Jude, we'll look at the call to contend for the faith, why we do it, how we do it, and the assurance of victory. Why? Because of the dangers of false teaching. How? We have a duty to contend for the faith. And finally, that we have assurance of victory. Jude is, the book of Jude is only one chapter long, okay? So we're not look, looking at the whole book, but it's only one chapter. It starts, Jude a born servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Who is Jude? Is he the apostle? But here it says, I'm the brother of James. So it's not likely to be the apostle, but more likely to be a brother of Jesus. Now, brothers of Jesus, uh, Jesus had brother, right? Because after... Mary gave birth to Jesus, Joseph, and Mary continued their children. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah when he was alive. But after his death and resurrection, not only did they become believers, they became church leaders. And so Jude writes to this group of people. It says, Beloved. Now we divide the book of Jude based on this term, Beloved. Verse 1 to 16 and then 17, Beloved. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. It says, contend earnestly. The word contend, ep agonizma, in the beginning, in the center, the agony, that's where our English word agony comes from. So to contend earnestly is to agonize over the faith to struggle, to wrestle, to speak up. Now, do we agonize over the faith, over what we believe? No, not likely. We'll probably agonize over our own life issues, right? 
You want to contend for the faith, but what faith? What are you contending about? That is why we need to understand the faith. There's this popular notion that before 380, you know, before Constantine became Christian and Christianity became state religion, there are many, many different kind of beliefs. It's only after they became the state church that we began to systematize what we believe. And so if you want to go to the original, you know, we shouldn't have all these dogmas because dogmas divide people. No, that's not true, okay? Even though it's a popular belief. If you see right from the beginning, even in Scripture, he says our common salvation. There was something common already at that time. The faith which was once for all handed down. It means it's not continuing, it's not progressive, it's already handed to you. Every part of Scripture, when it talks about the Christian faith, talks about the whole purpose of God. The traditions that are delivered, already delivered to you. Hold on to them. Paul says, don't add on to what I tell you. 2 Timothy, the things which you have heard, already heard and trust to others. Titus, hold fast to the faithful word. So, the faith is a set of beliefs, what we should believe, especially the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you study the early church, no church would exist if Jesus didn't resurrect. So it's not true, it's after 300 AD, you know, Constantine tried to force everybody to believe the same thing, that we came to believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Right from the beginning, it was the only belief that, that explains the existence of the church. The death and resurrection of Jesus and that He will come again. So if you want to contend for the faith, we better know what the faith is about. Otherwise, we will just have a blur notion of godliness. You know, be Christian means um, be nice, lah, be kind to people, come to church, give your tithe. Is that what the faith is about? If it is, then no thank you, you can have part of it I don't want. Surely it must mean more than that. But do we understand the faith? Otherwise, what are we contending about? And why was he so urgent? He says, I want to write a common salvation, but I feel it's necessary to exhort you to contend for the faith. Why? For, because certain persons have crept in unnoticed, means already in their midst, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly people. What did they do? Two things. Who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness. The grace of God gives freedom and they use this freedom to sin. Second, deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Don't recognize the Lordship of Jesus. So the rest of it is a bit complicated, but he's trying to unpack these two things, how they use freedom to sin and how they don't recognize Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. So he quotes three examples. First, now I desire to remind you, though you know all these things once for all, you already know, the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Referring to the Exodus. He performed great miracles, led Israel out of Egypt, but because the people were in the flesh, they didn't believe, they were destroyed. Second example is the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. There are stories, uh, uh, other books going around that says the angel came to earth and did immoral things and they were judged. Again, they were in the flesh and not according to God. The third example, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they were in the same way, as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh 
are exhibited as an example in undergoing the eternal, the punishment of eternal fire. The third example, again, they indulge in the flesh, they indulge in immorality, and they were judged. And then he applies it to their current situations. Yet, in the same way, these men, who are these men? Those he mentioned earlier, right? Use their freedom to sin and deny Jesus as Lord. These men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, revolt angelic majesties. And he unpacks this. What did they do? Well, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a reeling judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Again, at that time, there are other books uh, going around that talks about this story. Michael was fighting the devil over the body of Moses. Now, it's not in the Old Testament, okay? But he didn't uh, fight the devil based on his own authority. He says, the Lord rebuked you. So there are two issues. One, here in Jude, it quotes all these extra-biblical stories. Now, does it mean that all these stories are also inspired? I think only those parts that comes into Scripture that's inspired, that's accepted. Okay, the whole book that he quotes from, okay, it doesn't mean that he's endorsing the whole book and everything that's written in there, but these particular stories, Jude took it out and put it in inspired Scripture. Second, it also shows the people in their midst, those who commit so-called gross immorality, you would, you would think it's easy to identify them what? But it's not true. These people apparently are quite persuasive. Apparently, they were able to to fight all these demonic forces based on their own authority. That is why Jude warns them, right, that even Michael, the archangel, didn't dare to do it. How dare you do this? These men revile the things they don't understand. What they are doing, fighting all these demons, is what they don't understand. The things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. They indulge in their flesh instead of the spirit. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. For pay, they have rushed headlong the arrow of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So he used three biblical examples. Cain, what happened? He killed his brother out of envy and jealousy. Balaam, he, because of money, he turned away from God. Korah rebelled against the authority of Moses. What's common in them is that they indulge in the flesh rather than submitted to God. That's the common theme. And so this is how Jude describes those people in their midst. These men are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you. In the past, when they observed the Lord's Supper, they had a love feast, a banquet, a food. They ate and then they observed Lord's Supper, which means that these people are already in their midst. What's the danger of hidden reefs? You can't see them because it's below the surface, so you'll crash. So he's saying these leaders are people in your midst. They are dangerous. They are doing all this in your midst without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water carried by the winds, right? What they teach has no eternal value. There's no weight. It just is carried along by the winds, however the culture pushes them or what's popular. Autumn trees without fruit. By autumn, you already should have born fruit, but they haven't. So they're doubly dead. They're uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. When the waves hit the rocks, the foam comes out. So he's saying that their shame comes out like that. Wandering stars. The people navigate the sea based on the position of the stars that are fixed. Right? If the stars are wandering, then they provide no direction or value. So he's describing these are leaders 
who really are not providing you the right direction for whom the dark black, the black darkness have been reserved forever. So again, when we read this description, you will think, why didn't they realize that these people are wrong? Isn't it obvious? No. Because it appealed to our human nature, our self-centeredness, our desires, our need. Apparently, they are persuasive, they are gifted, and they're even able to perform miracles. Just like what Jesus said in Matthew, right? Those who come out to me and say, Lord, Lord, heaven, I served you. I cast out demons and did all these things. Why don't you recognize? And Jesus said, I don't know you. You know, early on in my ministry, there was a very influential church in Seattle. Seattle is a secular city, and so if you can plant a church there and attract a lot of people, certainly you must be doing something right. So I heard his sermon, and he was saying that, oh, you know, I hope our church can grow in numbers, grow in influence, we can plant more churches, because this is my little idol. I pursue after success, results, and productivity. If our church don't grow, will I continue to worship Jesus, or will I be in total despair? And he said, I don't know. But thankfully, I don't have to find out. Now, honestly, when I first heard the sermon, I was a bit uneasy. Seriously? Is he really saying that? But, you know, that's what we believe. We are pragmatic, right? If it works, it must be right. Isn't it? If the results, it must certainly be doing something correct. Now, eight years later, he was forced to leave the church that he started. Why? Toxic leadership. Apparently, his staff said, I mean, he was abusive of his staff verbally, and they said it's better to be his church member than to be on staff. You know, when I read this, I was wondering, well, I don't know whether my past, the pastors think this of me, you know. <laughs> better be a member of QBC than be serving here on staff. He went online with a fake identity to blast all those people who were critical of him, and he was discovered. And apparently, he plagiarized some writings in his, in his books. And so he left. Now, that was not so disturbing until a few months later, this mega church just dissolved. I mean, they have tens of thousands of people, and one day they just decided we're all going our separate ways. I've never seen that in my life. So you begin to wonder, you know, for the last decade, what kept the church together? What drew them to worship God? Clearly, it isn't one faith, one baptism, one spirit, and one Lord. It is one gifted leader. This was a situation they were facing, and that is why Jude said, I, I feel it's necessary to remind you, you should already know, but be alert. So he continues to describe these people. He says, verse 14, It was also these men that Enoch, the seventh generation for Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. He says, it's already prophesied that these people will come into your midst and they will face judgment. Why don't you know? And so he, bring, he brings out the, the dangers of this false teaching. He says, these are grumblers. They find fault following after their own lust, their own flesh, their own desires, own needs. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Why do we contend for the faith? Because of the danger of false teaching. When we think of the church, think of ourselves. You know, what, when we think of the church, what do they think of? 
Is it, as I mentioned before, our responses or political stance over some issues, or rather the way we live out the gospel? How, when we respond to certain things, it is out of our worldview. And our worldview is shaped by our theology. Whether you, have, you believe in God or not, there is a theology that shapes your worldview, and as a result, we respond. And so we have to ask, you know, what shapes our worldview? This sociologist, he says, culture catechize. Sermons are short. Only some churchgoers attend adult education classes, and even fewer attend Bible study and small groups. So if people are getting one kind of catechesis for half an hour per week, and another for dozens of hours per week, which one do you think will win out? How much time we spend on social media, on Netflix, how many hours, what shapes us? And he says the culture actually catechizes us, means teach us, shapes us. And so, maybe because of the modern era, we feel that you know, doctrines, dogmas are difficult, so we keep it simple, so people can understand. We make it relevant. Or, we do provide training classes, but people don't come. We don't get equipped. So rather than being shaped by the Word, we are shaped by the world. How much time do we spend a week learning the Word of God, reflecting on it? That is why this year, as we talk about contending for the faith, I'm burdened. I'm thinking if somebody comes to our church for a few years, then they leave, or they maybe grow up here and they go to another church, or they move overseas. What do they leave with? Do we just have a vague notion of what it means to be a Christian? You know, I said earlier, come to church, be nice, be responsible. Is that all? How are we catechizing our people? And so this year, we want to introduce the new city catechism. It is the modern version of older uh, 16th century catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism. Originally, I wanted to use the Heidelberg but it's 109 questions and very cheap. So, New City only have 52 and all very short. Not only that, we chose the children's version. You know, I took out certain words, so that's easy for us. Why? Well, I hope that we can memorize it together, learn it together. And because we memorize it, we reflect. You learn to reflect, reflect and do theology. Doing theology is not so cheap. It's just basically reflecting on how what I believe affects the decisions I make so that our faith and life is integrated, not dichotomized, not I come for Sunday, it's my faith, and then the rest of the week, I just do what I want to do. Lah. God helps those who help themselves. Really? Is that biblical? <laughs> if it works, it must be right. Singaporean pragmatic values. Really? Is that biblical? So, to reflect the- theologically is to, help, is to help us to remember, to understand what our faith is about. And so every week, we'll just go one through one question, you do it in our youth groups, young adult, children. Um, you can download the app to do it as a family. And especially for kids, you know, they actually remember. Whether they understand the separate thing, okay, but at least they remember. I remember doing it with my children when they were P4. And until today, they still remember. <laughs> actually, at that time, I also cannot memorize. Too old, you know, it's like, uh, what, life and death, very difficult. But for them, it's very easy. And so, when we remember, we reflect. So Heidelberg or the new city begins with this. Our only hope in life and death is that in body and soul, in life and spirit, we are not our own but belong to God. Why? What is your only hope in life and death? 
hope, uh, to have some security, uh, to have some, my bank account have something inside, so I feel secure. Why is it that New, New City begins that really our only hope in life and death is God? Because one day, you know, you'll stand before God. What are you going to say? How are you going to justify yourself? The gospel says Christ justifies us. We don't justify ourselves. Because in life, it's limited. No matter how successful you are, it ends. In life, no matter how good we want to be, the areas that we, are just, we will just stumble. And our hope is that we belong to God. And so what I shared in the pastor's voice earlier, um, he says, you are your own and you belong to yourself. This is a fundamental assumption of the modern life. That's why we pursue our own needs, our own happiness. And if we are our own, then it is up to us to forge our identities and to make our lives significant. While that may sound empowering, it is a crushing responsibility, one that never actually delivers on its promise of a free and fulfilled life, but instead leaves us burnt out, depressed, anxious, and alone. Quoted for Alan Noble, what it means to belong to God. When we belong to ourselves, it means we must prove our worthiness to be loved. It means we must prove the reason for my existence. How differently we try, you know, through our career, children, marriage, love, and what have you. But you know, to feel loved and accepted, it must be someone else loving you and accepting you. You cannot love yourself, accept yourself, you know. It doesn't work that way. We try and we just fail. But when we belong to God, it is God who loves us, God who accepts us, you realize I don't need to strive to prove my worth because God called me worthy. I don't need to strive to prove that I'm worthy to be loved because God already loved me. And it's out of that confidence and security that we pursue our lives and we live our lives for the gospel. And so the very foundation of our faith is to realize that I don't belong to myself. I belong to God who created me. Friends, when we want to contend for our faith because of the dangers of false teaching, what are we contending about? What is this faith? In 2024, how are we growing to know your faith? So how do we do it? He says we have this duty of contending. There are several imperatives. Imperatives means there are commands. So first, he says, but you, beloved, ought to remember. What do you remember? the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you. Remember the apostles' teaching. Specifically here, it says, they said, in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own lust. He's saying, all these people in your midst, you should already know because the apostles warned us, they, they talked about it. These are the ones who cause division, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. You see the contrast? They are devoid of the Spirit, you are filled with the Spirit. So we know this whole passage is one section. The first imperative is, remember the apostles' teaching. And there are two verbal clauses, building yourself up, praying the Holy Spirit. When you read the Bible, especially New Testament letters, it's important to identify the verbs because the verb carries the force of the letter to understand what the author is saying. So it starts with imperative. Remember, you're content for the faith? That's the first imperative. And then here it says, how? Remember. Remember the word of God, what is taught. 
but it's not just dead faith, it's not just hate knowledge, it's not just dried intellectual knowledge, it is a life. Building yourself up, praying in the Spirit, is a relationship with God. That is why dogmas and doctrines, they are not dead, they are not boring, because all of us have a theology. Even if you don't believe in God, that's your theology, that causes your worldview, and that results in how you do your life, how you make choices. When we begin to understand how we form this theology, form this worldview, you realize that everything is important. The very fact that I don't belong to myself causes me to make a series of decisions that I would not have made if I didn't understand that. How are we building ourselves up in this faith, praying the Spirit, building this relationship with God? Is it true that dogmas are boring, we should cast it aside? It's not. Because all of us, we have certain beliefs. And so in the 90s, there was the liberal theology. Because the world was changing rapidly. So all these theologians said, we need to change alongside. Sponge is an, a well-known liberal theologian. He says, congregations would grow if they abandoned their literal interpretation of the Bible and transformed along with the changing times. Adapt to the world, then we will survive, then we will grow. Now, 20, 30 years later, every survey on church growth indicates that the growing churches are the conservative churches. The mainline denominations, especially in the West, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Anglicans, they went along this track of thinking, do away with theology, because theology is divisive. Don't need to believe in Jesus to be saved. We just, you know, live out the gospel. Because all these are myths we don't know. But what happens is that only we, we realize that only the conservative churches are growing. And by conservative, the definition is these are churches that believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus and that Jesus will come again. Now, is this a surprise to you? It shouldn't be. Because right from the beginning, the only reason why Christianity existed was because we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if we didn't believe in that, we did away with that, then what is the purpose of our existence, friends? To do good works and charity? You know, there are a lot of charitable organizations and NGOs out there that will do a better job. To entertain people and make people happy? We can never out-entertain Disney, Netflix, nor Taylor Swift. Can you? No, why is Disney the happiest place in the world? I recently read the article that, you know, Disney's uh, entrance fee has just been going up, right? But yet, the trend is upward. There's more and more people are going to Disney every year. And the article said, like, I think it's a family of five. If you live in Disneyland, spend five days there and eight there, it comes out a total of $10,000, you know. And yet, people are going there. So the question is, why? You see, Disney invites us into a story into the story where you are the main character, right? It's about me, my feelings, my freedom, my rights. That's how the world thinks. That's how our flesh thinks. But the gospel is counter-cultural. The gospel, friends, invites us into a story whereby we are not the main character. Jesus Christ is. We belong to Him. He justifies us. He accepts us. He gives us a sense of worth and we don't strive to prove our worth. The gospel is counter-cultural. Jude says, contend for the faith by remembering, understanding what you believe, build yourself up in the faith. So we ask ourselves, you know, how am I building up myself in the faith? Every year pass, 
I'm getting older and older. Am I growing in Christ-likeness? Am I understanding my faith more? Am I being shaped by the gospel or by the culture? Second imperative, keep yourselves in the love of God. How? By waiting anxiously for the mercy of the Lord Jesus to eternal life. It says our hope is in eternal life. And meanwhile, we keep ourselves in the love of God. Understand, all the challenges we face, God is still love. But our hope is not in this world. Again, that's countercultural. Because the culture tells us we only have this life, our hope is in this world, and you grab as much as you can, experience as much as you can. But the gospel says, no, our hope is in eternal life. Now, it doesn't mean we just think about heaven and we don't do anything on earth. Actually, it's the other way around. Because we know there's eternity, our hope is secured and anchored. Then whatever we do in this world has eternal value. The more we are assured of eternity, the more influence and impact we can have of this world. Matthew Matthews, he's a sociologist uh, in Singapore. Um, he does it through statistics. So he's actually a statistician. He says, Prosperity gospel preached by some churches that God will make Christians rich if only they had enough faith will breed a generation of fair-weathered Christians. Traditional Christianity is equated with a life of spiritual disciplines, praying, reading the Bible, carrying one's cross. You are freed from that is liberation from work. He's saying why this uh, prosperity gospel works is because its emphasis is the here and now. Traditional churches are boring, right? It's the heart spiritual discipline, read the Bible, come to church, carry your cross. That's a burden. But we are freed, we're accepted by grace and so liberated from work. But he warns that, you know, if we continue like that and our hope is only in this world, this worldly, then it breeds a generation of people who cannot face difficulties. We face challenges and we say, oh, where is God? Isn't God gracious? Why am I experiencing this? Now, we don't just point at those prosperity gospel. We have to look at ourselves. The gospel that we believe, can it sustain us through difficult times? Because friends, life is limited. We will run into challenges and in that case, times, how do we find hope? How do we continue? Yesterday, I was just reading an article. It's a, written by a friend of mine uh, because our common friend uh, asked me to read it. Apparently, he, submit, he wrote an article in Straits Time in December and he shared you know, that 10 years ago, he lost his wife. So he raised his daughter single-handedly and she's about 17 this year. And just last year, he discovered he has some motor neuron disease, very aggressive. Within half a year, he's almost paralyzed. He has a very sharp mind. He still knows what's happening, but he just cannot move his body. And so the other friend of mine who asked me to read the article went to visit him and he asked this question to me. And people are in this state, what can you say to them? Tomorrow will be better. Really. Don't worry. God will take care of your daughter. Because his whole family, he doesn't have any family members, okay? You see, if our hope is only this worldly, then friends, there's no hope. Our hope is in the world to come. It's firmly anchored in eternity and that is why we have hope in this world. That is why we have impact in this world. That is why we lift out the gospel. So how do we contend for the faith? Remember the apostles' teaching, build yourself up in the faith, pray in the Spirit. Secondly, keep yourself in the love of God and so that 
our, our hope is anchored in eternity. And it says, the last few imperatives, have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of fire. On some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted. The three imperatives are three different groups of people. First, says those who are doubting, those people who are struggling in their faith, maybe those who have been influenced by those false teachers, don't be judgmental. Have mercy on them. On some who are not saved, who don't know the faith, save them. How? By snatching them out of fire with the gospel. And then the others, when you have mercy, you do it with fear, hating their sins. Right? You have mercy on the sinner, but you hate their sins. Why? In case you fall into their sin. So Jude is saying, contend for the faith by building up yourself in your faith, understanding your, your relationship with God. Secondly, having your hope in eternity and anchored in that so that you continue to understand God's love for you. And then finally, it has an outworking of it. It's not just about yourself. It's not just about waiting for heaven. It's a showing mercy to the people around you. And that's our duty to contend for the faith. But it doesn't just end here. He gives us hope. He ends with a doxology. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He says, Jesus keeps us from stumbling and makes us stand in the presence of God. Remember, the false teachers come in and cause people to stumble, to sin, use God's grace to sin, and they reject Jesus as Lord. But the answer is found in belonging to Christ. Why? Because of the gospel. Jesus helps us to, to keep us from stumbling and falling away. That when we sin, we can turn around. Not only that, one day He helps us to stand in the presence of God. The gospel is Jesus dying on the cross for us, bearing our sins so that we can be accepted by God. So that now even when we are struggling, you know we are children of God, we can turn around in repentance to Him. We will not lose that relationship. So that one day we stand before a holy God, we have Jesus covering for us. That is the gospel. You know when the first Adam sinned, what did he do? He says, don't blame me, blame my bride, right? When the last Adam, Jesus Christ, was hanging on the cross, he said, instead, don't blame my bride, blame me. He took on all our sins, all our ugliness onto himself so that he can keep us from stumbling and he can make us stand in the presence of God blameless. Friends, the core doctrine of faith is that we don't belong to ourselves, we belong to him. And because we belong to Him, we know we can stand blameless before a holy God. Because we belong to Him, we know even when we fall, I'm still a child of God, I belong to Jesus, I can turn around. That is the essence of the gospel. And it's only when we allow the gospel to grip our hearts and minds that we will find it worth contending for. That we will speak up, that we will lift it out, that we will draw people to, to, to the gospel because we know it's worth it. You know, there's this Danish film called The Feast of Babette. Uh, it's really about two sisters who gave up their dreams to tour the world um, to perform and also gave up their dreams of marriage to go home to the countryside uh, and inherit their father's church. Father started a really conservative church, very legalistic one. 
So they inherited this church. And then one day, there's this French lady called Babette who came and seek refuge with them. She f- was fleeing the war in France. Now then Babette uh, struck lottery. So she had money. So the sisters thought she would go back to France to enjoy her life. But instead, she used all the money to buy ingredients because she wanted to have a feast for the sisters to thank them for taking her in. Now these sisters, because of their Christian faith, said, uh, we are not allowed to partake in all this feasting. That's not part of our faith, you know. But eventually they realized, you know, Babette is actually a well-known chef in France. So she cooked up this feast. This was her last hurrah. She wanted to, you know, live the sense of this being a chef and artist once again. And it was so delicious and the sisters also partook in the feast with great delight. But at the end of it, Babette was feeling a bit disappointed. Because, you know, after this high, this wonderful feast where she used the gifts to cook and she enjoyed it, there's this whole lot of dishes to wash. You know, it's like at home you cook, right? After that, oh, I still have so many dishes to wash. But more important, because after the high, she felt that they're just going back to eat the daily bland food. A sense of loss after you hit a high. The sisters recognized it. And so they went up to her and said, No, Babette, this is not the end. In paradise, God will allow you to live up to your full potential as a chef once again. Now, this film brings out two lessons. First, from the view of the sisters, joyless Christianity. A faith that only thinks about heaven, you're waiting to go to heaven, so this world, yeah, a lot of trouble, very sad, only have all the difficult things, you know, and we don't enjoy. But you realise that's not what the Bible says, right? There are some people who live out their Christian faith, like my, my face every day, black, black, oh, very tough, I'll be Christian, self-flagellate, you know, we suffer. But the Bible says we give, Christ came to give us abundant life. If we are not ready to feast on this earth, we will not be ready to accept what God has for us in the future. Because you know in heaven, we are going to feast, right? Feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the grand wedding supper of the Lamb and we will be the bride. Secondly, it is from Babette's point of view. If there is no eternity, then friends, whatever we do is empty. We, all the highs in our lives actually leave us more, much more in despair because you have tasted that goodness, but you can't hold on to it. That is why a secular philosopher said, you know, if there's no eternity and we die and we just cease to exist, then all love, beauty and goodness are just plain cruel. Because you, you experience the goodness, but you know it's just temporal. So what for you experience, you know? Make me even long for it even more. But in our faith, it's not like that. Because there is eternity. There's goodness, true goodness, true love, true beauty. What we taste now is just a foretaste of it. The longing that we wish all things would be made right. And what I shared last week is an echo of Eden lost. We want to go back to Eden, the, the closeness of relationship with God. No more tears, no more disease. It is a hint of heaven to come. It causes us to long for eternity. And the more we long for eternity, the more we want to live and make a difference in this world. Friends, do we understand the gospel? Because until unless the gospel grips our hearts and minds, we will not be able to live out this faith, nor contend for the faith. So in 2024, how are you going to grow, build up yourself in this faith? Maybe it's uh, 
attending those uh, CE classes, journey onward, to understand more of your faith, to uh, attend precepts, to grow in your word, in the word of God. You know, or to come along with us, you know, uh, every week just learn to memorize the New City Catechism and use it to reflect, understanding this, what difference does it make to my life? Am I shaped by the culture or by the world? Am I living counterculturally? You know why my resolution this year is to wake up before the rest of the family to read God's Word? Because to me, you know, as I was wrestling through last year, especially what happened in December, I realized that is the only way I can continue to serve God. I realized I need God to speak to me, to stir in my heart the love for Him, to remind me of my first love, to, re to remind me that He's still good, He's still loving, despite all these things. Otherwise, every week I stand up here and say the goodness of God, I would be a hypocrite. I realize there's no other way to live my life except intimacy with God. I need it more than breathing. In the depths of our despair, what gives us hope? I think nothing in this life can give us hope but the hope of eternity, the hope that you know someday everything said would come untrue. And we know it's true because of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. I'll give us some time uh, to spend time before the Lord and to consecrate 2024 to Him. You may think, no, this new resolution is useless. By January or end of January or the first week, I'll forget. But friends, we never depend on our own faithfulness, but we depend on God's faithfulness. We may forget, but God would not. So, maybe it's a symbolic gesture. Maybe, you know, you may forget, but remember, God remembers. And so we want to consecrate this year to God. Consecrate ourselves. So when you spend some time in prayer, asking for God for new dreams, new goals, new areas for you to grow in your faith, to build yourself up in the faith. Father, we present ourselves before you. In 2024, help us to grow in one aspect of godliness. To grow to be more Christ-like. Certain attitudes, choices, behaviours that are deeply rooted. Father, I pray for your gospel and your love to do a deep work of transformation in our hearts. this in Jesus name. Amen. May I invite you to stay